I love just that, that reminder that it's all about Him. It's all about the Lord. And if you have your Bibles, if you will join me in Acts chapter 21, we're going to be there for just a few verses, and then we're going to head into 22. And as you're turning there, um, the world is a vast place. Um, perhaps many of you have been able to see different areas, even of our country, around the world, seven continents, almost eight billion people um, on this planet. And it's amazing that as how big this planet is and how vast it is, it's also amazing how at times it can seem so small. It can be so small. Perhaps you've had those moments around uh, sprinkled into your life where you were reminded of just how small the world was. Uh, several years ago, graduated college, went to work for an insurance company in Atlanta. And as soon as I was there, they, they sent me to Hartford, Connecticut uh, to go to an insurance school for three weeks. And so while I was there, uh, we had the weekends off and I'd always wanted to go to New York. I'd never been there before. And so I got a train ticket and rode an Amtrak into New York and it was awesome. I think I, I walked every square inch it felt like of that city. And I was, I'd come to Rockefeller Center and I had a ticket. I was doing like a tour of it. And as I'm standing outside of Rockefeller Center, I just hear somebody scream out, J-Rod! And, and I heard it but I didn't hear it. I was like, I've been called J-Rod all my life, like just nickname since I was little bitty and all my life J-Rod. And so I'm sitting there and they say, J-Rod. I'm like, no, they're like, J-Rod, turn around. <laughs> and I was like, no, I turned around and it was someone I went to school with and they had moved to New York and got a job in New York and we just happened to be at the same place at the same time in New York City. It was crazy. And then like two years later, I got to go back to New York and, and, and one, I was walking down the sidewalk and I run into someone from our church in Tupelo that was there. Like we just, we just crossed paths. It was crazy. It's like, man, the world's so small. And then just a couple years ago, I know I've shared with y'all, uh, I was in Bethlehem eating lunch in Bethlehem in Israel and I'm eating uh, some food and I look up and it's Scott. A guy I went to school with, he's across the, 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 the restaurant in Bethlehem. And I woke up, I was like, Scott, what are you doing, man? And we just caught up and it was just, it's these little reminders like the world is vast and there's almost 8 billion people, but it's crazy just how small the world is. And, and today we are going to be in a text where Paul is going to be reminded again just how small just how small the world is. And I do, I can't help as I say that, I just hear it's a small world after all, just ringing in my ears as I'm, as I'm uh, thinking about that. Maybe you've had that joy, right, of hearing that song down at Disney World. But, but it's a small world after all. Paul is going to realize it is a small world after all. He has finally made it to Jerusalem. We're going to see Paul's life is one full of faith. A faithful life. A faithful life, as I shared just a, a few moments ago, a faithful life is made up with faith-filled steps. One step after another. We will not find ourselves faithful to the Lord if we are not faithful with the steps that He shows us along the way. And this has been Paul's testimony. Since his salvation till today, he has taken one faith-filled step after the next. 
He said, I'm just going to give a little context. He said back in Acts 19, he was in the city of Ephesus. He spent more time there than any other city. Planted a church there. God blessed. And, and yet in Acts 19, he says this, or actually Dr. Luke says this about that moment. He says in Acts 19, 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So after these events, what had just happened? A revolt in, in Ephesus had just happened. And so there was a riot that broke out. They wanted Paul dead and Paul letting, being led by the spirit was like, Hey, I think my, my fruitfulness here is coming to a close. And he just, he, he, you know, the Holy spirit guides him out of there, but a riot had broken out. I want us to remember that a riot broke out in Ephesus. And then he had gone through the Macedonian churches that he had planted, invested in, and took a love offering. And he would take this love offering to the church in Jerusalem when he would get there because the church in Jerusalem was impoverished, had great poverty. And so Paul had a passion to be able to support the local church. And so he went around and he had been collecting this offering and he wanted to hand deliver that. And on his way to Jerusalem, he stopped off in Miletus and he met with those same Ephesian elders before he Across the Mediterranean. And he says this back in Acts chapter 20 with those leaders. He's, the Bible says in verse 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. And so Paul, being faithful to the Lord, takes faith-filled steps. And he gets on a boat and he makes his way across the Mediterranean, ultimately headed to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem because he wanted to get there in time to celebrate Pentecost. He wanted to hand deliver this love offering to the impoverished church. And Paul had a burden for Jerusalem. He had a burden for the place that he spent so much time. He had a burden for the church. And he had a burden for those people who were once like he was, who were blind to their sin and desperately needed Christ and salvation. And so he's making his way there and he stopped off in Tyre. It was the first city. And, and once they hit landfall and they were warning him for seven straight days, don't go, Paul, don't go, don't go, don't go. From Tyre, he hopped back on the boat and went to Phoenicia for a day, then Phoenicia to Caesarea. And it was there while he was in Caesarea that the church once again said, don't go, Paul, don't go. A prophet of the Lord named Agabus came to Caesarea and got, a, a, got Paul's sash. It's like a belt. And he bound his feet and he bound his hands. And he said, Paul, this is what is waiting for you in Jerusalem. He said, don't go. And then Dr. Luke, who was on his mission team, their own team started telling Paul, don't go. The Bible says that they urged him not to go. But for Paul, he must be faithful to the Lord. No matter the cost, the Holy Spirit had revealed what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. He understood. He understood those don't go Pauls and the prophecies of Pauls. He understood that as preparation for what was coming. But he had to be faithful. And so I'm going to summarize a little bit uh, just to kind of set up where we're at in the text. But he made it to Jerusalem. Paul made it. And as he made it, he connected with James. James, not the disciple James. The disciple James had already been murdered. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. 
who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And there in Acts 21, the Bible teaches that he got with James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church, and they all came together. And they shared what God had done. They shared the testimony of God's faithfulness and all the lives that were changed. And even James is like, wow, Paul, since you've been gone, myriads, he uses the word myriads, thousands of of Jews have come to faith in Christ here in Jerusalem. And so there's this, there's this like celebration that goes on, but there's also this time where James is like, man, that's amazing. Praise the Lord. But there is a problem. There are some messianic Jews who have trusted Jesus as their Lord and savior. And, and they, they think that you are telling people like stuff that you've never said before. And and like rumors were being spread about what was going on in the life of Paul in chapter 20, 21, verse 21, the Bible says this, they are all zealous for the law. He's talking about Jewish believers. James is talking. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. Paul never said such a thing. Paul never said such a thing. Now, Paul is a grace guy. We're under grace. We're not under law. Okay. Salvation is not because of what we do it's because of what Christ has done. All right. So he's a grace guy. But Paul didn't go to the Jews and say, hey, don't don't do that. You do what you want to. We're under grace. You don't have to do that to be saved or to be right with God. But if you want to do that, like go right ahead. But what had happened was some words and some lines were getting twisted. So James, to preserve unity within the church, he said, hey, James, he says, hey, Paul, hey, four guys right here are taking part in what was known as a Nazarite vow. And so basically, long story short, Paul hopped in on the tail end of that that Nazarite vow, and, and basically to appease these Jewish believers who were like, man, Paul has lost his mind. <laughs> Paul hasn't lost his mind. He has gained his mind. But yet he did that to kind of calm the, the tensions that were circling around there. But then they made their way to the temple. But here's, here's something I want us to be reminded of about Paul. I love Paul. So encouraged by Paul. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, listen, or 19, here's what Paul said. He said, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it. I love this. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. And so here is the reality is that as a believer, as you follow the Lord and you take steps full of faith because you desire to be faithful to the Lord for what he has called you to do as a believer there, do not be shocked. We cannot be shocked when misunderstandings take place. Even believers misunderstood Paul. And as we're going to see, unbelievers misunderstood Paul. 
But as a believer, when you make decisions and you take stands and you take action that many believers may not really understand to know that that's okay. Because at the end of the day, we seek to honor the Lord with our lives. Elbert Hubbard in a book called Love, Life and Work says this. He says, the man who is anybody and who does anything is surely going to be criticized, vilified and misunderstood. This is a part of the penalty for greatness and every great man understands it and understands too that it is no proof of greatness. The final proof of greatness lies in being able to endure derision without resentment. Paul would say, like Peter said back in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than man. And what happens is when we obey the Lord, there will be a misunderstanding. As we take faith-filled steps, there can be misunderstanding. He says in verse 27, that when the seven days were almost completed, so they're wrapping up that, that Nazarene vow, they're wrapping that up, the Jews, and listen to this, verse 27, the Jews from Asia. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And if you listen real closely, you will begin to hear, it's a small world after all you will. And I apologize for that chorus there, right? But, but because these are Jews from Asia. And you know what city was in Asia? Ephesus. And you know what happened in Ephesus right before Paul moved? A riot. And you know what they wanted to do to Paul in that riot? They wanted to kill him. And now all the Jews have gathered into Jerusalem for Pentecost, for the celebration. And they see Paul and they are eaten up with anger and they go to lay their hands on him. Verse 29 says, for they had previously, so I guess maybe days earlier or earlier that day, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. There it is again. Misunderstanding, but they supposed. They didn't, I, my hunch is they, they, did, they had their mind made up. They weren't supposing. They made their mind up. They're like, they're like Paul's bringing Greeks into the temple, the, the, the areas that are just for the Jews. I mean, they're just thinking about everything they can do to get their hands on Paul. And on this temple mount. Now, we're talking about this temple scene. I want to show a picture of the temple. If this, this would be kind of a picture of what the temple would have looked like at that time. And this would have been if it, as if you're sitting on the top of the Mount of Olives and you're looking west toward Jerusalem. And the Temple Mount is this 35-acre complex. And on top of this 35-acre complex, you see the temple there. But they had a court for the priests. They had a court for the women. They did have a court for the Gentiles. But if a Gentile would be to step outside of their area toward the temple, there would be a sign that they would be executed. They would be dead. And if you look at the top right hand uh, corner of the temple, that's the northwest corner. It looks almost like a castle there with four 
um, kind of lookouts. That is called Antonia's Fortress. And Herod built that as a Roman outpost. And so that they could stand guard and they could see all that's going on on the Temple Mount and in the city. So if anything broke out, they would be quick to sweep in and to take care of what's going on. And so this is all happening on the Temple Mount and the Romans there are in Antonia's fortress. In verse 30, the Bible says, Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. Why did they shut the gates all of a sudden? Because they were about to murder Paul. And they did not want his bloodshed to spill into the other areas of the temple. And so they are shutting the gates. Verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort. Now, a tribute of cohort... That's the same role that Pontius Pilate would have been serving in during his time, during the time of Christ. Now it's a guy named Claudius Lysias, and we'll learn more about him later. But now he's the tribune there. And it says that the word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions, and he ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Prophecy fulfilled. Just a few days, Caesarea, Agabus, the prophet of God, comes down, takes Paul's belt, wraps it around his feet, wraps it around his hand. He says, Paul, this is what's waiting you in Jerusalem. Don't go. Don't go. This is what's waiting for you. And now we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. The fulfillment is true. And so this tribute probably took as many as 200 fighting soldiers to that mob scene to restore order that was breaking out on the temple courts, on the temple mount that day. And so here's, here's another truth. As we take faith-filled steps, there are going to be times we're misunderstood. As you take faith-filled steps, God wants to use your story to reach other people. God wants to use your story wants to use your testimony, wants to use your grace story of how God rescued you from your sin and rescued you in salvation. And he wants to use your story. I, a lot of times kind of talk about testimony and, and people are like, well, I don't feel like I have a great testimony or, or what, like, like there's levels of testimony. Listen, like every testimony is amazing. Every testimony is a is a testimony of a life that was changed. Every testimony was a life of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness, as Paul says in Colossians, to the kingdom of his glorious son. And every testimony is worth sharing. And so Paul is going to share his testimony because God wants to use our testimonies to reach people. All through Acts, you see people reaching people. The, the church today, this is God's design to reach the community, is people reaching people. And he wants to use your story. He wants to use my story. And so it even begs the question, when was the last time we verbally shared our testimony with another person? And we shared the faithfulness of God and for all that he did. And so Paul is going to share verse 3. The Bible says, I am a Jew. 
He says, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And what Paul's doing there is he's sharing his testimony about faith in Christ. The tribune was asking him questions and he kind of, the tribune actually thought that he was some Egyptian rogue guy who led a revolt in the past. And Paul's like, I'm not that guy. He actually spoke to him in Greek and they're like, who, who are you? But Paul asked permission to speak. He said, may I speak? And so when he does, he is there on the steps of Antonia's fortress. And I want to look back at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 21. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And they said, and Paul then shares his testimony, what we just read. On the very steps that King Jesus was on 27 years earlier. Leading up to this moment, the, the angry mob, they were shouting shouts of away with him. The same spiritually blind religious people shouting to Jesus, crucify him. You see the, the life of Jesus, the life of Paul, they, they sink up in a lot of ways. The life of Jesus, he set his face on Jerusalem. The life of Paul, he set his eyes on Jerusalem. Jesus Christ knew this path would be marked with suffering. For Paul, the journey to Jerusalem would be a path marked with suffering. And yet, they were faithful to follow the Lord in everything that God commanded them to do. And Paul, in his testimony, is saying what is a powerful tool, and that is, Hey guys, and ladies, I was just like you. He talks about our fathers. He talks about Gamaliel. Like Gamaliel was, if not the, one of the most influential Jewish rabbis in the history of Judaism. And Paul's like, he was my teacher. And he says, I would go and I would look to bind men and women and to bring them to Jerusalem and to bring them into bondage. Paul is saying, I was once like you. And so as we share our testimony, there's power in relating to other people. You're not, you're not calling them names. You're just relating with where they're at in life. And oftentimes our brokenness relates to others' brokenness. And God can use that. Paul's saying, I was once like you. And then he shares his life before Christ. And then he shares his life, his salvation experience. And this is how we share our testimony. We share about our life before Christ. And then he shares about his salvation experience in verse 6. And this is kind of a recap of Acts 9. But Paul says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. 
And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me and said, and I love this, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone, everyone of what? You have seen and heard, and now why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. What a testimony of God's grace chasing him down. He's, he's telling them, I, want, I think about that chorus, I once was blind, but now I see. It's that beautiful uh, kind of stanza of just this reality that, in Christ, we are sin, we are sinful, and apart from Christ, we need his grace and his salvation. And though he was physically blind for a little while, and Ananias, God used to bring healing to his life, God, uh, God brings salvation to Paul, who was spiritually blind, and God revealed his need for a savior and to be forgiven of his sin, and God's grace changed his life. In God's grace, he pursued Paul. He revealed himself in an unmistakable way. And Paul repented of his sin and accepted Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. And so he's teaching us, Paul's teaching us how to share a testimony. He's saying, hey, relate with who you're sharing with and share what your life was like before Christ. And then he shares about how he came to faith in Christ. And then... What does your life look like after Christ? You see that there is a change. And I shared this perhaps before I shared it with the eight o'clock service. And I say this with all the love and all the grace that I can muster up to share. But I believe this is true with all of my heart is that if there has been no change in your life, that there has been no Jesus in your life. If you've had no Jesus in your life, there's been no change in your life because Jesus changes us. He transitions us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's son. He changes us from the inside out. This is what he does. And so for the rest of Paul's life, his life has been changed. His life has been forever changed. And you see it everywhere he goes. And we talked about as you follow faith-filled steps following the Lord, that there could be misunderstanding. Don't you know Ananias? Don't you know people were giving Ananias a hard time? Like, dude, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who it is you're inviting to your house? But he had to be obedient to the Lord. And so faith-filled steps, he follows the Lord. And in faith-filled steps, he wants to use our story to share the gospel with other people. But then he talks about how Christ has changed his life. And we share our testimony, how Christ has changed our life. Verse 17 says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, 
They themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in me. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. God had a plan for Paul's life. God has a plan for your life. My hunch is Paul could have never scripted his life and the adventure that the Lord would lead him in. That as Paul led him, he took one faith-filled step after the next. That journey from, from, from his salvation experience, so he made it to Damascus, not the way he thought he would, but he made it to Damascus. Galatians tells us that from Damascus, he actually went to Arabia for three years. And he spent three years, him and the Holy Spirit. We don't all know what happened in that point, but what we do know is, is we could call it a desert degree. And the Holy Spirit prepares Paul. From the desert in Arabia, he goes back into Damascus. It's where we read how he was lowered in a basket over the wall because it was not safe for him to be there anymore. From that basket, he makes his way into Jerusalem, which this is the scene that takes place in Jerusalem when he gets there. Jesus says, it's not good for you to be here right now. It's time to go. And so he goes from Jerusalem back to Tarsus, his hometown. He goes there for about seven years. And so for about 10 years from the time Paul was saved, about 10 years later, it was about 10 years before he went on his first missionary journey. But all along the way, God was preparing him for what was to come. He was preparing him for how he wanted to use him. And what we see all through Acts is that God uses people to reach people. He wants to use you. He wants to use me to reach people with the gospel. You see it with Philip and the Ethiopian. You see it with Cornelius and Peter. You see it with Stephen and Paul. You see it with Ananias and Paul. Every faithful step, every faithful step leads to a faithful life to the Lord. And so here's a question. It's a fun question to think about. And my D group, I love my D group. I meet with my D group every Thursday night. And we get together and we're reading the word together. We're memorizing scripture together. We're praying for one another. And the question came, came up. What currently, I ask this question to all of us. What currently in our lives are we trusting God for that unless he pulls through, it's not going to happen? That the reality is, is that in life is that we can become very dependent on ourselves and very dependent on our plan and the way we want to do things and even have the way to do them that we can edge out those areas of faith that God wants to call us to, that we need to trust him with. And so discerning our next faith filled step begins with asking God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I love this question. This is a fun question, but it's also a question that you don't want to ask unless you're ready to listen to what that answer might be. Because what we know is that that answer will require faith and it will require trust and it will possibly edge us out of our comfort zone a little bit. I love going back to verse 10. We see this in the testimony of Paul. And he says this back in verse 10 of chapter 22. He said, this is after Christ blinded him with the light and rescued him. He says this, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? 
And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. I love that. I believe that that is the, perhaps one of the defining marks of a believer is that it is God's will, not man's will. That it is coming to this place of humility and surrender and dependence on the Lord to say, God, what do you want me to do? I know I'm kind of going all this and I'm, I mean, we want to be right in the center of God's will, but like, what, what are you, what are you calling me to do? God, what do you want me to do? And my testimony in life was honestly, when I was that insurance agent and I was in Hartford, Connecticut, I promise you, I didn't see being here as a pastor at that time. Okay. I promise you that God oftentimes doesn't get the spotlight out and go whoosh. There it is about 10 years from now. Here's where you're headed. No, oftentimes he gives us enough light for the next step. And that's what he tells us in his word. Your word is a lamp into my feet. It's a light to my path. Lamps put out a whole different amount of light than a spotlight. And all the time a lamp will just give you enough, enough vision for the next step and for the next step and for the next step. And so this is how God leads us. This is how he guides us. And so what a great question is this. If you're praying, seeking, desiring to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus, what if we ask the question, God, what is... What do you want me to do? What's your next step for me? And so as we wrap up this morning, that next step can look a lot of different ways. It is possible that you are in the room or maybe listening in online. And it is very possible that up to this point in your life, that you have lived what you would call a good life, that you would describe yourself as a good person. That if you were to weigh your works out, you'd be like, you know what? I think, I'd, I think overall I'd, I'd probably do pretty good in that. And yet, even if somebody maybe said, hey, I'm going to give you a quiz on the Bible. And you take that quiz that you could possibly ace it. Because over time, you have gathered lots of good information about Jesus and about the gospel. But it could be that you're here and you know all the answers, but it has never made its way from this right here to this right here, to your heart, that, that perhaps that, that you have walked through life up to this point, apart from a relationship with the Lord. And yet God has made us for a relationship with him. And so it could be today. Your next step is, you know what? I think I probably could do pretty good on a test. And I think I might be a good person, but my only hope is Jesus. And I know that I do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. And so if that's you today, I pray today is the day of salvation. That today is the day you acknowledge your need for him. Repent of your sin. That means change your mind about it. It's change your direction and to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life. His finished work on the cross and the empty tomb. It could be that, that baptism is your next step. It could be for whatever reason you've had that time and place where you've accepted Christ, but yet for whatever reason you haven't taken that step in believer's baptism. This is not to make you saved. This is an outside action, an outside symbol of an inward change that you have been changed. And so maybe it's taking that step of baptism. Perhaps it's being connected in a group. Maybe, maybe you've kind of lived life in, in this room. But it's time to take a step into the next room and, 
around community and begin to build relationships with other folks so you're not walking through this life alone. It can look a lot of different ways. It can also look however God would lead personally in your life, but, it, but we won't know if we don't ask the question. And so by God's grace, may we be quick to answer the question. I know we want to be a faithful church. Faithful churches are made up of faithful people. Faithful people are faithful because they take faith-filled steps. People take faith-filled steps when they know what God is calling them to do that's requiring them to trust Him and place their faith in Him. And so by God's grace, may we find ourselves faithful, knowing that to, be a, to live a faithful life is to take faith-filled steps one after the next. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for your word. God, thank you so much for the testimony of a faithful servant in Paul. And thank you, God, that there was nothing that could detract him or distract him from his pursuit of following you with all that he had. That God, to live a life of faith, it requires steps of faith. And so I realize that can look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. But Father, we know that's how you, how you lead us. You lead us one step at a time. And so, for the believer in the room today that needs to step into a relationship with you, I pray that God, that you would silence the whispers of wait, that you would silence the whispers of not now, that you would silence the whispers of, well, I gotta get some stuff right before I do this, that you would quiet the whispers of, but what will people say? That you will quiet the whispers. And God, that by your grace, they would take that step of trust in you. And God, acknowledging their sin, repenting of their sin and trusting in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. I pray whatever that step is, you would find a sensitive and obedient. I pray, God, that you would find us sharing our testimonies, our stories of how your grace changed us. And God, that we would never get over it. Paul never got over it. May we be a church that never gets over your grace and your love and your care. So Father, we love you. We thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to stand and sing, and we say this every week, so I'm just going to say it one more time. Uh, we are here for you. We'll have pastors down front who would love the opportunity to pray with you. If we can pray with you, that would be a blessing. If you would feel led to come to the altar and pray, I encourage you, come to the altar and pray. If you feel like you need to get down on your knees right where you're at, then I encourage you, get down on your knees right where you're at. And that we would just be responsive and responsive and sensitive to however the Lord would lead us this morning.